stumbled onto the sleeping giant. Let's broaden our minds. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sleeping Giant podcast. I am your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. I've really been looking forward to this episode because it has found me post-Aquaman, which is pretty exciting for me. I did not get an opportunity to see it at the cinema, which I am marginally bummed about because I am a fan of Jason Momoa and uh, also Nicole Kidman and Patrick Wilson and uh, Willem Dafoe and pretty much the entire cast. So I'm not sure how that film got away from uh, my wife and me, but um, I finally saw it and of course I'll share my thoughts here. Now the news that I am excited about comes right off of the most recent Star Wars celebration, which just wrapped up a few Mondays ago. And as you probably know by now, we finally have both a trailer and a title for the upcoming Star Wars film. And we're no doubt going to get into that over the course of the show. Now, I don't know how I could gloss over that. I don't even know who I would be if I glossed over that. I don't think I would have a show, honestly. So I dare you to try and stop it. Now, do you know how close I've come to making this podcast a Star Wars podcast? Any idea? I will give you a slight hint and, uh, It's only every time I switch on the microphone. Seriously, y'all, I love it. Moving on, at the center of this month's show, we will be turning our attention to 2019, that's this year, as the 40th anniversary of the 1979 film Alien. Now, my decision to do this came to me as a very inspired and insistent rush, though that may have actually been the Taco Bell that was involved at the scene. Of course, we'll get into that gem later. I'm pleased to say that I've uh, been joined in this episode by the irreplaceable Steve Marcotte, who is an OG Alien fan and father to yours truly. So that is awesome. Also, uh, I almost killed myself with a Vix inhaler, and I'm going to tell you all about that. Y'all get comfy, because we are about to begin. So, Aquaman. Alright, I am going to go ahead and make a statement. It is a statement by way of a confession, or vice versa. Whichever one works out to be the easiest for you, okay? I will leave that decision in your lap, okay? So, here it goes. I don't really know anything about Aquaman, apart from the fact that he's, at least to my eyes, one of the most ridiculed and possibly disrespected comic characters, again, that I am aware of. Having said that, I don't know why it is. I only know that it seems to be true, and uh, and I don't really have a dog in the fight. I have no stake in it. That, uh, that I am not a major DC fan, I don't think is any secret. Of course, Batman is always going to be one of my greatest loves, but... Uh, I'm not a huge DC fan, and um, I'm really not a fan of the DCEU. However, it did find uh, in me a a love of Wonder Woman and for Wonder Woman. And both my wife and I are fans of Jason Momoa for uh, pretty clear and obvious reasons, I think. He's got nice hair, I think is what it is. Now, considering the the aforementioned factors. I did buy Aquaman the day it came out. I bought it blind. I usually don't make blind purchases, but Target's exclusive Blu-ray, it did its job of suckering me in 
with a book-style slipcase and a lenticular cover with both Aquaman and Black Manta um, shifting back and forth into one another. And I'm, I'm a sucker for lenticular covers, so I'm, you know, whatever, I'm sorry. Actually, you know what, I'm not sorry. Sorry, I'm not sorry. I love lenticular covers, and, and uh, yeah, there's that. Now, the wife and I did give it a watch with our daughter, and it made for an extremely entertaining movie night. The film was... I would say far from complex, but it was fun to watch, and it was fun to watch on just about every level. The set and costume design I found to be especially appealing, and I was continuously amazed by the casting choices, and I say that because I'd been aware that Patrick Wilson, of whom I am a big fan, was uh, was in the film as Arthur Curry's half-brother Orm, but I had no idea that Willem Dafoe played a part, and I'll go you one further. Dolph Lundgren as King Narius. I was blindsided by the Myrrh Swede and Aquaman, and, and of all those little surprises, they all seemed to kind of coalesce and, and, and made just a really fun experience and something that I really enjoyed watching. So I've probably said before that I sometimes prefer seeing comic films based on material with which I'm not familiar. I'm not ensnared by the troublesome sort of nets, I guess, of of second-guessing. Um, and that includes second-guessing story, character decisions. I am not put off by the inclusion of some character elements over others. I'm not as invested in the characters, so I don't have much to lose if the movie sucks. But I have everything to gain if I enjoy it. And to me, that's pretty cool. And in the case of Aquaman... I feel pretty good about saying that it's an excellent adventure film. It's concise and to the point in that dude on a quest story sort of way. It has plenty of nautical quips, which is... I'll go ahead and tell you that I took out a lot of the nautical jokes that I had <laughs> that I had written into this because they, they were just awful. Um, but anyway... The uh, you know the special effects were groovy. Lots of merfolk on monsters of the deep, ass kicking. At no point did the story insist on itself, which I think that was the movie's lifesaver. Now, the picture gives off the notion that it only wants to show you a good time, and I was more than happy to let it. Honestly, now um, I would say big ups to Jason Momoa also because that fellow he he worked hard. He works hard. And I hope that he's able to enjoy his earned success for some time to come. I really enjoyed Aquaman. I really enjoyed Jason Momoa as Aquaman. And uh, I hope to see more of it. Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. How about that title reveal, y'all? How about that trailer? First, I'm going to say simply that I think the trailer did exactly what it was designed to do for me. It excited me when I had found my interest in a new Star Wars film had waned somewhat. It evoked feelings of fondness for Leia and gently reminded me that it would be the last time we'd see her in film, at least in that capacity. The trailer also hinted that Chewbacca might find some comfort in flying beside an old comrade also. And the teaser did, it, you know, it did many things for me and not one of them was negative. Second, I don't think that I want to get involved in the speculation game this go-around. I invested a lot of thought into The Last Jedi before its release, and that did not turn out well for me, personally. 
I admit that the letdown probably had more to do with uh, the old headcanon than anything else, though I am still amazed at how wrong I had been in my guessing. I'd like to avoid that sort of self-imposed disappointment this go-around, so I'll likely not get too involved in anything more than superficial news articles or posts from the actors and storytellers themselves. So, keeping all of that in mind, it is still impossible to not allow the wheels to start turning after viewing that trailer. It was staggering in some of the visual hints that it dropped, particularly with one partially sunken revenant of a battle station. And who could forget that uh, that laugh? Yeah, you know that laugh. You know the one that I'm talking about. I know there's a lot of hype around the return of old Sheev, and I reckon it's well-deserved. I'm not crazy about the idea, but I think there is a lot of viability in the notion. Let's not forget that... Uh, let's not forget... As the boys from Blah Wars Illustrated in one of their performances of the original drafts of Return of the Jedi, which, if you haven't heard, by the way, I do vehemently recommend that you listen to it. Because there is a moment in the one of the original drafts for Return of the Jedi where previously deceased characters return from beyond. And it's not exactly like that's a new thing in Star Wars. So, you know, we'll see. One thing I know for certain, one thing I know for certain is that my anticipation for this film has been ramped up tremendously. I count myself fortunate that there are more or less one to two films being released every month from now until the time, or films that I would like to see that are going to be released, be released every month in between now and the time that episode nine is released. So, I don't know that any of them will be able to keep me fully satisfied until I've seen Star Wars. Because a Star Wars lad needs his saga like... Uh, needs it like something really necessary to live. You know, that's this has not been my most profound moment. 2019 is the year that brought to us the 40th anniversary of Ridley Scott's 1979 horror masterpiece, Alien. Penned by screenwriter Dan O'Bannon and directed by Scott, Alien brought something quite exciting to the sci-fi horror table and perhaps even made Giger a, uh, well, maybe not a household name, but it certainly made him a little bit more mainstream than he may have otherwise been. Not only did Alien set a unique tone for what both horror and sci-fi film could be, it also spawned one of the most popular and expansive franchises that spans films, comics, toys, and a veritable host of other media, including, of course, that illustrious crossover of crossovers, Aliens vs. Predator. I'd like to think that Alien has done quite a bit to influence and shape my appreciation of not only the genre, but films and media in general, and joining me in this episode is Mr. Stephen Marcotte, father to yours truly, and the OG Marcotte fanboy. Dad's a massive fan of Alien, and was there at the beginning, having witnessed um, the picture in, in 1979, and, and having the, the hell scared out of him in cinemas, as he said, uh, during that summer. Therefore, it seemed only right to invite him back onto the show and discuss the film in celebration of its 40th anniversary. Can y'all dig that? 
I certainly hope so. Dad, you there? I am. Hi. Hey, cool. Hello. Very nice to have you back. Thanks. Sir. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. It seemed like the most appropriate thing to do since this year marks the 40th anniversary of Alien, and I know you're very fond of that film. Uh, I am. I am. When you mentioned it, uh, I went back to that day. I, re I remember very vividly going to the, to the theater to watch it, very much so. That's awesome. And I, I really do, as we've spoken before about Star Wars, I really do envy that position. I wish that I could go back and sort of experience that sort of thing without having prior knowledge of other films, say, in the franchise or quote-unquote developments in production technology and, and special effects and things like that. Well, we pretty much only had the poster to go by. And then there were a little bit of of buzz beforehand, but again, you're only dealing with network television. You obviously didn't have the internet. There was nothing right. to give anything away other than people having seen it before, but I think I saw it on opening night or close to opening night. I had oh, wow. no idea That's awesome. what what was going to happen. Well, I'm I'm very excited to talk about it. I'm very glad that I was able to get you back on, and uh, I'm actually really glad that I'm even able to do this. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I've been sick oh, I'm for sorry. The, the past couple of weeks. Well, you know, it happens, um, but I've been sick, and as always, you know, I get the fever, and then the respiratory stuff sort of comes later. It comes in stages for me these days. I don't ever just get sick mm. and then get better. Uh, it, it tends to unfold into this sort of nightmare uh, blossom of, of mucus oh, and goodness. general sort of pain. But what I was going to say is it wasn't the illness, I don't think, that would have prevented me from doing this as much as it was. <laughs> I had a, a sort of mishap with a VIX inhaler. I don't oh. know if you re remember those things. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love them. I have. I still uh, have yeah, them. They're, they're tremendous. And of course, I being the person I am, I tried to save a dollar and I think I got one of the knockoff brands. In all fairness, I don't know if it was the brand of the inhaler or the com. I don't. I don't know if it was a combination of both the brand of the inhaler and the heat in my vehicle. I'm not sure. But what happened was I was outside of a home. I was about to go inside and deal with a bunch of dead rats that had oh. been baking in you know 140 degree heat, which you can imagine is fantastic. Oh, I bet. So I bet. I have a respirator that I wear in these sorts of situations. Um, of course, you should wear your respirator in an attic anyway, but that's neither here nor there. So I have a respirator, and since I had been sick, I had this fix inhaler that had been sitting in the vehicle baking also, and I got the brilliant idea that I would take a super puff in each nostril before I went inside of the attic, which, looking back, still seems sound. <laughs> However, it had liquefied oh my gosh. In, in the vehicle, so I put it up my nose, I inhaled as deeply and strongly as I could, and it filled my sinuses oh my. with liquid. And instantaneously, everything in my face liquefied. Tears were streaming Ooh. out of my eyes. Mucus was running out of my nose. I was just spit everywhere in this respirator. And I, I, I didn't even care who was watching. I was in a neighborhood. I had ripped my respirator off and was essentially convulsing in, oh my in this person's yard. It was, like, it was like I had been maced. 
And uh, I, man, it was bad. It was bad. But after I got everything out, I started feeling better. The silver lining is that all I could smell was menthol <laughs> after that. So it, it made it made my my work somewhat tolerable after that. So I didn't I didn't think I was going to recover though. That's the point of that story. I thought that I was going to be in need of serious medical attention. Oh. And I I wasn't, you know, there was a you know little few strings of blood here and there and oh unimaginable sinus pain, but you know, apart from that, I was good and I'm better now, I think. Oh, well, that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yep, always fantastic. And uh and and speaking of that whole situation being in an attic with a respirator, very rarely do I gear up and crawl into an attic or get into a crawl space under the house and not think about alien or <laughs> aliens. Every time. Oh, that's crazy. Yep, the things we do. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, again, I'm very glad that you're here. I'm very glad that we're going to be able to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that we had sort of gone over it briefly uh, prior to today, and there were, of course, some details and some things we wanted to iron out. Uh, Alien, the film, was released in the U.S. on May 25th, 1979, and in the U.K., I believe, on September 6th. So that was, I guess you were, you went to see it in May? Uh, I believe so, yes. Um, I had a friend um, that was a state trooper at the time, and I remember very clearly going with him. He had this old duster, which was a Dodge product or Plymouth, I forget which one. And he was always so careful of this thing that it was so old, though, and it was beat up, and he always wanted to park at the far end of any parking lot. And so that's what we did. And I remember it was a little theater just outside the gates of LSU, and LSU has gates. It really does. I remember that and, the last time yeah, you and I went to the campus. Yeah, and uh, it it was right outside the gates. And it was a packed house. I think it was a Friday night, and it was a packed house. And I remember that there was a local celebrity. There was a news guy there that was watching the movie and I was like, Hey, that's the guy from channel two or whatever station it was. So do you remember his name? No, not, not offhand. Sure. I sure don't. So was there a lot of buzz? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was one of, again, in, in the seventies or so when I went to movies, it was um, a lot of buzz. There was a lot of television advertisement, which was pretty much the bulk of the, the main advertising, the, how buzz started. And so you'd see these ads, both in um, in the paper, the paper TV, etc., you'd see the ads. Um, when I was in college, believe it or not, I would go to the library and read Variety, and you'd see the the ads in Variety for the different movies uh, that mm -hmm. they were coming. And so, the buzz was an individual would see an advertisement let's say on TV, and then you just start talking about it. Hey, did you see the ad? Or, and again, for Alien, it was in space, no one could hear you scream. And that was, that was a great tagline. And so I think you had mentioned in a previous conversation, you had the poster and the tagline, and, and that was just exciting enough. And then you'd go see a movie, and you'd see the poster of coming attractions, mm -hmm. and you'd see trailers, 
the way they were intended, meaning you'd see them at the beginning of movies, and it really hyped up anticipation for uh, this this movie coming. Similar to Cloverfield a couple of years back when you knew nothing about Cloverfield at mm-hmm. all, and all you saw was the advertise- the trailer. But you say a few years. It's actually been almost 10. Oh, my gosh. But Cloverfield yes, is a good example where there was nothing on the Internet. Nobody knew anything about it. J.J. Uh, Abrams did a great job in secrecy. And with movies back in the 70s, there was no internet, of course, and so there was no way to hear mm-hmm. anything. There was no spoilers other than people who had seen it before you. Right. And and you know, we talked about the Star Wars universe. Star Wars universe. You hated that guy who saw Empire Strikes Back before you did, because he really wanted to tell you everything that happened in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's just it's really hard to sit on that info. Yeah. Exactly. And. And it's so strange, actually, with the existence of the Internet, how that sort of I mean, it's it's a double edged sword, because on the one hand, you can generate a tremendous amount of buzz, especially if you have complete control over how you choose to tease and unfurl your unfurl your film, Mm -hmm. sort of like you mentioned with Abrams. Uh, And on the other hand, you have intentional spoilers and inadvertent spoilers and you just it's so hard to differentiate between the two or or avoid one without running into the other mm-hmm. and vice versa very frustrating scenario <laughs> so alien was written uh, by dan o'bannon mm-hmm. who drew a heavy inspiration from works such as uh, 1957's the thing from another world yep james uh, james starring james arness before gunsmoke Yep, Forbidden Planet also, Mm -hmm. and Planet of the Vampires Mm -hmm. from 1965. So he's on record as saying that he didn't necessarily steal Alien from any one person, but that it was sort of a culmination of influences uh, from these previous films, which I think is is fair. You know, if you take something and uh, you kind of make it your own and put your own spin on it, it's almost as good as original. And and I think the thing about Dan O'Bannon and hearing conversations from him... He didn't believe in a lot of exposition. He believed the story should be the exposition. And I, I don't know how, when you want to bring that up, but... In, Can you elaborate Yeah, on absolutely. In Alien, there's no exposition to speak of. Apart from the Nostroma carrying ore, you don't hear any backstory about the characters. You, mm-hmm. you don't know anything about Dallas. You don't know anything about... Ripley, any of those people, they're just in that in that ship, and it's just the story that you see. They right. they wake up, they get a signal, they go to the planet, facehugger time, and then what happens from there? And and <laughs> well, you certainly you certainly encapsulated the film in a nutshell, I think. And and that's it. You don't have a lot of tedious exposition where you have one character talking to another character right. about I became the driver, I came, became the pilot of the Nostroma after spending X years for the corporation. You don't hear anything about the corporation. You just have the story. Sure. And, and the story, of course, was directed on film by Ridley Scott, who uh, his pri- prior directorial debut was in 1977. So that was the same year Star Wars came out. And of course, I can't 
go five minutes without talking about Star Wars. <laughs> so we'll get into that in a, a minute. But that film was The Duelists in 1977. And then he would go on to helm Blade Runner in 1982, which you and I had talked about. Mm-hmm. We weren't quite clear on that. And that was the chronology there. So as far as that exposition or lack thereof, as you had mentioned, partnered with Ridley Scott behind the camera, how do you think that partnership developed or how, how well do you think that it worked? Oh, I think it was great. I think they they had a lot of discussions back and forth about what should be on screen and how it should be presented and O'Bannon would say, yeah, I think that's good and and O'Bannon would actually go back and he sought out some help as far as okay, they they found this egg, so what should happen next? How should it get on the ship? And there would be some collaboration with other writers. And, you know, how about it, it's very intrusive. It's, it's um, so they, they came up with the facehugger idea, another writer. But, but then to, to have that on screen, uh, so when they did the mock-up of the facehugger, uh, between Ripley and O'Bannon, that collaboration, the the coloration mm-hmm. of the the model was the just the the beige that you see when they make a model. They go, that's human color. Yeah, that's great. Let's go with that. So yeah, very unsettling. So all these different little collaborations going through the movie, and then we'll talk about a little bit about Ridley Scott and his motivation. In, in making the movie the way he did. And again, mm-hmm. no CGI. This was all practical effects. Right. Absolutely. And I definitely want to touch on that. Before we get into the film itself and kind sure. of the meat of it, sure. as it were, I'm, I really would like to know, and I'm sure a lot of other people would like to know, what was your experience being at the cinema, seeing this film that was maybe unlike anything anyone had ever seen before? I, I don't like... Um, horror movies for the most part I, I must confess I find them tedious uh, I saw Friday the 13th the first one the day it opened it was I, I am, I'm not <laughs> yeah. kidding it and I didn't think a lot about it uh, but this movie scared the heck out of me you had no idea what was happening you absolutely had no idea everything was new the him looking into the egg which you kind of knew that was well that's not a good idea yeah don't do that don't do that but the face hugger and then there it being off of him and go okay now what is gonna happen well the acid let me go back the acid bleeding and then Mm -hmm. the fact that you go from this little creature to this huge menacing monster that picks off the the shipmates one by one oh my gosh what's going to happen and then the false ending Mm -hmm. that again you didn't have any of that stuff at all It, it was you had pretty straightforward stories again um we're talking about the 70s and in jaws it was pretty straightforward you had which until that time was the number one movie uh, ever. You had a creature, they're going to seek it, and they're going to destroy it. And then you've got Star Wars, which is the story of a a young boy seeking adventure. And then Close Encounters, um, which was a space story. So 
they had pretty standard arcs going through it and they were entertaining they were extremely entertaining but with alien you hadn't seen anything like that before and then the the giger imagery that was pervasive uh, that was something that no one had ever seen before right and, i know the first time i had ever seen his art i mean obviously the first time i the first time i had ever seen it was through the vehicle uh, of alien and aliens and in fact i probably if i search my memory i probably well, at least I'm cognizant, I think, of having watched Aliens first. Yeah. It, I have yeah. the most memory, mm-hmm. I think, of Aliens. And then, and that was kind of cut up with memories of Alien. But I don't remember actually sitting down to watch Alien in, in and of itself until maybe a few years after it, I had seen Aliens. But, but yeah, so the first time I had seen Giger's work, even you know, having you know, a, a couple of decades having passed by and then being exposed to more through TV and, and, you know, at that time, of course, the internet being or having been developed into what we know it as now still blew my mind. And I'm sure you remember that phase that I went through, uh, <laughs> you know, wearing lots of black uh-huh, and being sure. he- heavily involved in Giga, which, you know, I look back on that time in my life with um, equal parts revulsion <laughs> and, and also some, you know, just sort of almost... Um, fond nostalgia i would say i miss i miss it sometimes but on the other hand you know i'd, I'd say hey man it's going to be okay yeah yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah exactly <laughs> wear wear some color yeah yeah but uh but no so that that was a tremendous aspect of the film to me especially was was giger's art and still and still is as a matter of fact um it's funny you had mentioned jason Voorhees and friday the 13th because Roger Ebert had described Alien at one point in his um, expansive career of reviewing and, and watching films. He had described it as almost a Halloween in space, but that the saving grace of the film was its pacing. Oh, I, and yeah. I, I, the character development and, and the world building. I, I love you. You mentioned pacing. The, the pacing of that movie the the pacing of the movie where you go in in basically four 30 minute segments and the pacing is slow and deliberate and the pacing itself is telling a story again mm-hmm. without a lot of exposition on the part of the individual actors you're just letting the story unfold in front of you at a very very deliberate pace and, and, right. and the other element uh, so often goes unrecognized is the editing. There's not a lot of big, broad cuts. There's a lot of static shots where you just focus on the imagery on the screen for mm-hmm. a significant amount of time. And, and one notable thing, Harry Dean Stanton said, for example, when he's looking for Jonesy, and he is not an attractive man, <laughs> Uh, but then you have a great close-up of him looking up mm-hmm. and, and taking his hat off with the condensation falling on his face. And he is said to say, thank you, Mr. Ripley, for the close-up. So the pacing, the editing, again, all fall into making this just this classic piece where you let the 
what you're seeing unfold in front of you mm -hmm. and it just you asked me what i thought of it and again uh in preparation for this i watched the theatrical version not the director's oh, okay. cut because the, the interesting the, choice. yeah the theatrical version i wanted to remember how it unfolded and i i, I i'm I had seen the, the director's version before, mm -hmm. which actually asks answers some questions that you have to ask in in the movie itself. But anyway, it reminded me of the pacing, just the deliberate pacing and letting the imagery. So, for example, the imagery and pacing when everyone's waking up in the ship and having mm -hmm. the characters reflected in the helmets themselves that are there on the bridge just just that imagery is is really something and he takes the time in in letting those characters be displayed he doesn't cut away from it and just keeps rolling for a period of time and so you're getting a sense of seeing something you haven't really seen before the intro to the film as I recall it, yep. or, or rather, I should say, one of the first things that you see in the film, and this brings me back to the mention of Star Wars and how it's sort of similar. One of the first things you see is the Nostromo uh, flying over the camera. Mm -hmm. And you get kind of a sense of, I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, Majesty. It's, it, it feels old school. You feel, at least I feel like you're seeing an old freighter that mm -hmm. you would see here on the planet. Um, but you also, at, at the same time, because you're seeing the planets with, the, you know, with their rings and what have you, you're getting a sense that this is, that does not belong on Earth, that it's elsewhere. And you get this idea of, of vastness, I think. And you said majesty. I think that works. I think that works as well. Um, so that's, that's how the film opens to my memory. And as, as you described, we're introduced to the crew via them awakening in the pods, which... Can I, can I, go, again, back, can I go back to the opening, though? One of the sure, things, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I think it's, is of note is the, the title scrawl or the title... Uh, again, we're talking about something you haven't seen before. So Ridley Scott mm -hmm. really wanted a unique opening just to bring the title on screen. So he hired a graphic artist. And if you remember, you're seeing characters appear and it almost has hieroglyphics. So you have, say, the the left-right slant of the A and the and the upright of the in, and they fill in over time. They don't mm -hmm. uh, hit you right away. So he, he was really keen on employing that hieroglyphic look. Again, so this is a project this mystery of what you're about to see. And, and yes, the, the, the grittiness that you had mentioned of the Nostromo, um, I hope we talk about how this was not a pretty ship. This was a very lived-in environment. Uh, it wasn't. Absolutely. It wasn't a 2001 pure white structure. Uh, this everything about it was lived in. Right. It felt very real, yeah, as if yeah. if we were in the future and we achieved the ability to travel. In space, this is how it would be done. This is what it would look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
as opposed to a sort of idealized imagining exactly. of the future. And, and this was a working vehicle. Mm-hmm. This wasn't space exploration per se. It was a freighter. And like right. other freighters, it was dirty. Blue collars in outer space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and that reminds me actually, um, earlier on in the film, as you get an idea of who these people are after they wake up, which I would like to say that is a yet another sort of expository method to illustrate vastness. As, as I'm talking about this and as I think about this, it almost seems as if throughout the entire picture, vastness is something that is, is made to be, that you're made to be aware of or that it's being impressed upon you. So the fact that the crew has to enter a sort of hypersleep to travel between different points is pretty significant because they're traveling such a long way mm-hmm. and over such a long period of time, obviously that they, they would age and, uh, and lose valuable moments of their life otherwise. So that by itself is pretty spectacular. And the other element of, of vastness, the other aspect of that is their pure isolation. There is no mm-hmm. one to help them. As the story <laughs> unfolds, they're in the middle of nowhere. And so it's like an old horror movie again, and we, we haven't really described it uh, vocally as, this is just a horror film. It, it right. is a sci-fi film, yes, granted. But this is a horror film, like Ten Little Indians, where people get knocked off one at a time, and you go, who's, who's next? Don't open that door. Why are you doing that? Don't go into that basement. There are those types of things. But they are isolated, and they are alone. <laughs> and it seems like they, a lot of times, are very aware of that and, and go to some lengths not to bring that to the forefront mm-hmm. of their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, I would say, the characters of Parker and Brett mm-hmm. that really kind of grounds things, I believe, because they are, the, I, I relate to those guys. Let me just, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll put it like that. You know, they're there to work. Mm-hmm. They're there to do a job. They're trying very hard to stay focused on that. And I find a lot of times that uh, bitching <laughs> is a way to, to get through what you're trying to do, but also to distract you maybe from, from the uh, larger more looming aspect of things and that is that isolation that you spoke of it, that job i'm sure is not for everybody no no not at all um so we're introduced to the crew shortly thereafter them waking up um we have of course ripley um officer uh, kane and captain dallas uh lambert i think mm-hmm. was the um the, pi- the a navigator? pilot navigator the pilot. yeah mm-hmm Okay, the science officer, Ash, Ash, portrayed by Ian Holm, which I just love. I love Ian Yeah, Holm. he's great. And then, of course, the aforementioned Parker and Brett, um, which I think you had uh, you had called out Harry Dean Stanton earlier. Yeah, Yafet Koto, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 As, uh, well, he, he was Parker, I think, and Harry Dean Stanton was Brett. Yes, yes. Um, but anyway, so you've got these guys. You, you get a sense of that blue collarness that we were speaking of earlier. Um, they're out there doing a job. The job is done as a matter of fact, and they're on their way home. If I remember yeah, that correctly. Yeah, so they're, they're returning to earth. Uh-huh. And it's at that point that they're getting ready for this, 
that they discover that they're nowhere near home. Um, or maybe they're halfway there or something to that effect, but that mother, the ship, has woken them up, and they find that they were woken prematurely. Yes. If that, yeah. uh, if that sounds accurate. Um, so, of course, the question is, why did this happen? And upon researching that, they discovered that there was a distress signal coming from uh, an unknown origin, I believe, and they're trying to, to figure out where this is. Yes, they, yes, they, and they, um, uh, um, oh, I lose my train of thought. Yes, they, um, Veronica Cartwright, who, Lambert, um, recognizes that they're, they're in their particular quadrant, and then they isolate the signal, and they find it in sort of a little planetoid, and then they discuss, mm -hmm. it, it has an atmosphere they can walk on it, etc. So, yep, and then they, they prepare to go down to the planet or planetoid. So at this point, if when you're watching this movie and you watched it in cinemas mm -hmm. the sure. day or close to the day it came out and this is happening, what's going through your mind? Because they're thinking, is it a, is it a distress signal? Is it a warning? Well, it's, it's just that it's just part of the story. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. okay. What's going to happen? They're they're being redirected. Uh, okay, this is just the next step. And as I mentioned, well, what were your feelings as a viewer? It's like holy point? cow, what's on that planet? What what are they going to find? Um, why are they bring going down there? And I, I think one of the things about movie watching, I I will confess that I do, is I don't think a lot about it. I said okay, let's just see where we're going. <laughs> um, I, I really don't think a lot about it. I just let the story unfold and say, okay, where are we going with it? Someone's telling me something I should pay attention to, and, mm -hmm. and I'm just going to let them do it. I'm going to let them take me on a journey. And, I wish that I could do that more freely. That's, I, that's something that I've had to learn how to do, especially when we do things like this together or I do it independently. I found that, let's take it, and I don't want to go off on a tangent on this obviously i just want to use endgame as an example <laughs> when i watched endgame i was like okay just sit down and let this movie happen and enjoy it and then it's the second viewing and the third viewing that's for the objective mm -hmm. viewing that's that's for the you view those subsequent times as uh, an exercise in objectivity and then you can deconstruct and you know hypothesize and theorize and all that um, so yeah, I've had to teach myself to, to kind of just go with it the first time. Um, like when I'm watching this, for example, when I watched alien in preparation for this, it was, it was a little bit more critical, I think. Um, but not that I was, you know, searching for things that were wrong with the film or things that I could, you know, deconstruct. It was just to appreciate, I think on an aesthetic level. And uh, and a if there's one film where you can do that, I think Alien is, is certainly mm -hmm. one of those. Um, but uh, moving on, they're on this planet. So this is the first, or, or I think the first time that you get to see some of the design work that Giger did. Yep, and, and I'm, I, I want to, can I take you back just, just a little yeah, bit? Absolutely. One of the things that Obana was very careful of is that as they leave the Nostroma in that getaway vehicle or in that vehicle that gets them to the planet, when they land on the planet, mm -hmm. 
He didn't want it to be this easy, gentle glide down to the planet. He wanted to, everyone to get a sense that this was real and there was danger involved. And as such, mm -hmm. if you remember, there's they're shaking and, and really Scott actually joked he said, we have to do this but we've got people behind their seats shaking their seats and it actually came up again later uh, to get that effect of, of shaking because they didn't shake the camera and they land and they actually have some damage so they're not sure if they're going to be able to get off the planet mm -hmm. so so I, I all of those elements in storytelling and I'm sorry to interrupt you as you're talking about this oh no not at all um it leads you to the credibility of, hey, this is real. This is happening to these folks. So what, what, what else is going to happen? And then, you're right. You, you get the Giger imagery now. Um, when they see the big ship and the the navigator, as I believe that that piece is called. The na oh right, yep the the one with the actual burst chest. Uh -huh. And oh gosh, it. I'm trying to remember, and it, it's kind of running together for me right now, yeah. unfortunately. But it seems like we see the ship in a wide shot. You, you do, and and can I tell you some interesting trivia? Because this is stuff that really interests me totally, completely. Yeah. Well, that's what you. That is what you were. Hearing. Oh, well, Ridley Scott wanted to try to get that image uh, futuristic. Again, again, you're dealing with the model. There were two elements. Of, one, you had the Giger imagery, but he wanted to present this very high-tech approach. And so he's on set one day, he says, anybody have a camcorder? Somebody did. So he said, okay, he got the camcorder, he shot the model with the camcorder. Then he shot the, the image projected from the camcorder on a monitor with a, a widescreen anamorphic lens. So that playback, that static you see, that is from him shooting the playback on a, from a VCR onto a TV screen shot with a, a large anamorphic lens. An, that is innovation. Uh, yeah. Another element, when they go into the ship, the, the navigator ship, where you see that far shot, mm -hmm. that is his kids dressed up to, for scale. Yeah, again, we're talking vastness. Yeah, there's two of his son or sons or kids dressed up in little spacesuits um, to just give it a slightly give those astronauts or those those uh, uh, individuals uh, a diminished look compared to the vastness of that ship. And that is another aspect of mounting tension i think that i would like to touch on because it's in this scene that we are with the the crew mm -hmm. of the nostromo and we're watching those on the ground approach this structure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we're seeing it on those monitors that you mentioned and it's it's such a unique experience at least to me as the viewer because you're seeing this these these alien textures through the muddied lens of the crew members on the ground. So you're not given the opportunity to see it huge and in living color on screen like you probably would in a modern mm -hmm. film. Sure, sure. So you're sort of seeing this as the crew is seeing it. And to me, that's just fantastic. And of course, you do get those close-up shots once once the camera is actually with the crew on 
um, on the planet, which uh, which I don't recall the name of at this time. Do you no, I, the name I of the don't. Right I, I don't offhand. Um, um, I, I, anyway, I suppose that's not integral to to the discussion. I, but another element, another element, though, as as the three people are are on the planet, Ash is oddly excited about what is going on, right. and he does this little jig right before he gets into a seat because he's got this nervous energy because he's very excited mm-hmm. about what they're going to see. Which I I am still not one hundred percent on. And I was trying to keep my eye out for this when I watched the film again. And um, and I definitely don't want to go too far into this right at this moment. But what knowledge did Ash have prior to this? Because he's in sync with Mother, correct? Uh, yes, yes, yes. So how much does Ash know before they bring Kane back onto the ship? I, Anything at all? Yeah, I... I Having, again, just watched it again, and when Ripley goes to Mother, and again, I know we're a little ahead, the um, special order is for the science officer only. And and Mm -hmm. so I'm led to believe that Ash was absolutely in sync in, in that he knew as soon as he was awoken what they were there for. And it's reasonable mm-hmm. to assume, although it's not pointed out in anything, it's reasonable to assume, as you've said previously in, in further watchings, that the Nostromo was sacrificed. It was sent out on its mission and they knew that it would return back by this planet mm-hmm. and and then the crew was expendable. They that so Ash was programmed, Mother was programmed. They were going to stop at this planet. Um, they they had gotten the signal. You again, you can extrapolate that uh, the corporation has this ability to to get more signals, and so the Nostromo happened to be in the area, and they rerouted it. Science officer knew. Boom. He knew, and he was hoping what they were going to find. He couldn't tell them go look into the bowels of this abandoned ship and look into an egg, mm-hmm. but he was hoping they would find. Remember, he says, you know, there, you know, why warn them when Ripley says it's a warning? Um, why right. warn them? They they would already know, right? Yes, in mm-hmm. his British way, yes. <laughs> um, and so he he's just letting them go. He knows it's dangerous, which becomes very important and probably. Very evident, I would say, after Kane is lowered into that cavern, <laughs> which, which again, just, you know, now that we're talking about this, I'm just reflecting on shot after shot, scene after scene, where vastness and emptiness is so heavily implied, because you get that shot of Kane being lowered down into that chamber, and it's just this little guy dangling there mm-hmm. with all of this space below him, and it's just, it is so eerie. But of course, he's lowered into the chamber, discovers the eggs, which we all know at this point, mm-hmm. and leans over, as you had mentioned, and then boom, face hugger time. So Ash and the knowledge that he has, as I said, being uh, very important and at this point very evident, he overrides Ripley, who, with Tom Skerritt being on yeah. on the surface, she becomes commanding officer, and he overrides her order to shut them out mm-hmm. 
So at that point, you have the uh-oh feeling. And if you don't, you should. Yep, yep. And then there's a scene in the director's cut. Again, I mentioned that I saw the theatrical version, but in the one sense, it was cut with reason. I think every time there's a director's cut or or these different scenes taken out of a movie, I, I, I tend to agree with why they were taken out. But when um, Lambert comes back, she slugs Ripley. And that was a real hit. <laughs> it was, mm-hmm. um, And it was because Ripley should have done something. Uh, I think this was after... Um, Kane is I, somewhere in there, and I think it, it it really takes away from the the pacing. But um, everyone, in a sense, blames Ripley, and it wasn't Ripley's fault. Oh, why would they have done that? Because Ripley was the the officer in charge on the ship, and they all know the protocol about if if there's right. something that's that's wrong. And I, I'm sure that rule is born out of many tragedies oh yeah well i mean yeah Yeah. rules are generally set in place for a very yeah exactly some most of the time time, sometimes not but you know when you're dealing with machinery and life and death scenarios yeah yeah, one should probably display an adherence (laughs) to the rules but then he wouldn't have a movie so yeah sure well and that's and stories come from um um aberrations or violations of the rules that's where where stories come from so we've got the alien in the ship at this point and that's that's another well i shouldn't say the alien we have an alien organism Mm -hmm. and inside the ship which at this point i think in in literature and the mythos as it were the mythology it's referred to as uh the ovomorph oh really um i believe so yes so we have the face hugger on Kane, which to me at this point in my life, having read all the stories I've read and seen all the movies that I've seen, the face hugger being latched onto Kane is still one of the most frightening images and scenes that I can think of. It is so invasive. And it's you can it's really hard to imagine anything as invasive as that. Well, it's not terribly hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah, and, but you don't see it. Think, you don't see it very often. I don't think that Dan O'Bannon was very quiet about his intention. Yeah, exactly. With, uh, with that scene, as far as as that invasiveness is concerned, because oral rape, I believe, mm-hmm. was what he had used specifically that sort of uh, scenario. So yeah, it is. It is very invasive and and deeply disturbing on that level. So Kane is locked up with this thing, and obviously it's a major concern for everyone. And I love how you can feel that tension, you know, where everyone is, is so concerned for Kane, but you also get the sense that they know that this is bad for everybody. <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, you have Ash, who is just cool as a cucumber, um, and displaying that very dispassionate, attitude which you again would probably want Mm -hmm. in a science officer but at the same time you just want to throttle him because you want to get this thing off of kane too and you want him to be okay yeah it's it's crazy and and he is and again later in in a couple of scenes ripley says continue doing what you've been doing which is nothing right (laughs) Well, he's, he's keeping himself very occupied. And again, 
with subsequent watchings of the film, I, I'm more and more convinced that Ash is just biding his time at this point and trying to gather as much data as he can um, before the crew is inevitably destroyed by the organism. Yeah, and, and one, again, going back to the vastness you talked about as it relates now, we're starting to see the facehugger. What does the facehugger do? You asked me. Um, what did I think in the theater? So they, they tried to get that one digit off and they cut him and they cut the facehugger and it bleeds acid. Again, watching this, you go, oh my gosh, what the heck is that? <laughs> it bleeds acid? Molecular right. acid. They use the term molecular acid. Oh my gosh, it keeps going and going and going. How can we kill this thing? And, and, and again, just as a side note, the look on Harry Dean Stanton's face when uh, Tom Skerritt hands him back his pin. It's like, oh, yeah, here's your pin. Here's your pin. <laughs> I bet there's a lot of pins in, in, on the ship. You know? so, yeah. You know, why don't you take, take, take my pin? Um, but again, what are, they're, what are they dealing with? And everyone's going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, and to your point, Ash is, is looking at amazement. Didn't he say it's just a magnificent creature? Oh, yeah. At one point, I yeah. think, towards, uh, towards the end, mm-hmm. and, a, and probably what is one of the more famous quotes from Alien, which I can't remember verbatim. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, he does, he does touch on that. Um, so at this point, um, more or less, that whole scenario has, at least in all appearance, solved itself. Mm-hmm. The facehugger just disconnected from Cain, curled up and died mm-hmm. more or yeah. less um, which of course I think it twitched and Ash was like oh it's a reflex yeah which um, is interesting there's a there's a lot of um, um, Ripley Scott said they they would go to an abattoir to get pieces so the mm-hmm. the uh, egg um, on the surface was sheep intestines and, and oh, we talked wow. about that's really Scott's hand manipulating the sheep's intestines and then Looking at the face hugger, uh, the dead face hugger, that's a giant mm-hmm. oyster. And uh, oh, on the underside. The underside, yeah. Uh, yeah, the the effect of the viscera yeah, of, yeah. of the face hugger was always something that bothered me. Yeah, it should, because it's pretty creepy. Pretty creepy. The uh, speaking of that, though, speaking of puppetry, this brings us to the next scene, and I guess the sort of. I, I, I keystone moment or scene of the film is when the crew is having dinner, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which uh, we all know what happens, but I I'm keen to know what your thoughts are or were while you were watching the movie for the first time. And all of a sudden John Hurt, uh, Kane starts to cough and choke. Yeah. I, again, it's what, what you, because it's all new. It's all new. You're thinking, okay, um, he's fine. Uh, oh, but he's not fine. What is going to happen? And he starts coughing and choking. And, and again, I just kind of let it go. And then they flip him on the table. And, and that thing pops out. It's just, oh, what the hell was that thing? <laughs> and and it, it's just one surprise after another so just take a typical horror movie you take halloween or you take scream or you take any of the classic horror movies and you've got a bad guy with a knife 
or you've got a bad guy who who's going around killing people. But again, an alien, you don't know what the heck is going on. You have no idea. And so the next scene after the facehugger scene is they think they're looking for this little thing the size of Jonesy. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest surprise is what comes next is that this thing's grown into something that's seven feet tall. Right. Um, Which is, is pretty astounding. And that's the first time that we get to see the alien creature, I think. And I want to say that the first one to be claimed by it is Brett. Yeah, if I Brett. And, and, and really, Scott admits that he went about this movie uh, similar to Jaws, where the tension built up more and more uh, before you saw the creature. Because mm-hmm. they, they were concerned about it looking like a guy in a suit. Right, and we'll get to yeah, that yeah. In, in a second. I do want to talk about the dinner scene again very sure. briefly before we move sure. ahead. Because I had found this out after the last time I had watched the movie in preparation for this. But I didn't realize that that also was, uh, I mean, obviously it was a puppet, the the baby xenomorph. Mm-hmm. But that it was being manipulated, uh, I guess... Uh, behind and under John Hurt. Yeah, so yeah. you had his head and his, his limbs there and that the the explosiveness, the squibs that they used and the blood and, and, and guts and viscera and whatnot, mm-hmm. um, that had not been explained, I suppose, to the actors on set. So the reaction that made it on screen in the final cut mm-hmm. was genuine. Yeah. The surprise was genuine. And to me... That illustrates an aspect of filmmaking that I am absolutely in love with. Yeah, they, um, uh, Baraka Cartwright, who's probably the greatest victim of that scene, uh, <laughs> said that they had started the scene uh, with John Hurt on the on the table, and they stopped it right away because the slit in his shirt wasn't big enough. But apart from that, mm-hmm. it was just John Hurt on that table. And they didn't know what was going to happen. And she certainly didn't know she was going to get hit in the face with a bucket of blood. And right. she gets put, and she just reels back and, and she's just reeling from it. And she's like, <laughs> what the hell is that? And, and another element similar to that is that really Scott told Brett and Parker, Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton, to basically, on on set, in between takes, to be somewhat rude to the other actors, like Sigourney mm-hmm. Weaver. So later on in the scenes, that, that there's this real animosity, real animosity between the characters. And really, Scott later admitted, you know, I really wish I had done that. Yeah. Um, but you're right. He he was very much Scott was very much in on I'm going to surprise the actors. I, I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to surprise them, and by doing so, I'm going to get these real reactions, and they're going to surprise the audience. And they did. It worked. Yeah, I suppose that it wasn't they they weren't Kubrick levels of of interference mm-hmm. and <laughs> manipulation yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of the actor's emotions and that. So, I mean, that's, 
we can be thankful for that at least. Which is, it's very interesting to examine that as, or rather I should say, in the creation of art, do the means justify the end? Which, you know, I think is still pretty debatable. Mm -hmm. But I know if you're watching a film like, say, The Shining, in which, you know, Kubrick was infamously um, just terrible to Shelley Duvall, it made for a hell of a movie. Yeah, it did. Um, but in, so in this case, I think uh, Veronica Cartwright probably got off easy with with maybe just a, a few pieces of uh, of rib and and maybe corn syrup. <laughs> but uh, so that that was impressive. And and as we were getting into that that first appearance of the creature again, it's that Giger designed biomechanical aesthetic. Mm-hmm which is I can only imagine being in your position and, and having seen something like that for the first time. Oh, it's, on, uh, on yeah, screen. it's crazy. What, yeah. If you, if you think about going forward, there are relatively few new things that you, nothing new under the sun that, that you see now in modern movies. And I do plan to see in game, but in in-game, you, you've seen some version of those effects somewhere along the mm-hmm. line uh, before. And that's not take away anything from in-game. Uh, it's not. Right. Or take away from any of the Star Wars movie that's coming up in a couple of months. Um, there, there's, there are going to be effects that we haven't seen before. The storyline's going to be unique, but... Uh, it, it, it's just the, like Darth Vader. We hadn't seen anything like Darth Vader before. Maybe Robbie the Robot or Forbidden Planet, but not a lot of, of, of new stuff like that. Well, at the time, I think O'Bannon had been working in Europe, and I think that he had... I don't know if he was intentionally shopping around or if his collaborations with other artists and filmmakers and writers had introduced him to... Um, some of the European artists of the time. I think Girard um, was someone that he had his eye on as far as uh, being on the design team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess for whatever reason, they settled with H.R. Giger, which you know I can't imagine it being any other way at this point. Um, so one of the things that I want to mention about Giger's work on the film specifically is that you know, obviously, they really went for his sort of biomechanical, surrealist aesthetic mm-hmm. because they thought it would be appropriate sure. for the film. But as I'm watching this, and especially this last time, I kind of got the impression that, and I want to go back to the beginning of our conversation about sort of the grittiness and the clunkiness of the Nostromo and then the human crew members. It, in my mind, it's almost as if the creature is, and I may be digging and looking too far into this, but it's almost a synthesis between um, the mechanical and the biological. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sort of being a, a synthesis of those two things on board this ship surrounded by a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> and I'm, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it seems relevant to me. Um, but again, going back to what I said before, I, I can only imagine that um, a lot of Americans not having seen anything like that oh, before. It was nothing. Probably just insane. Yeah, it was. And then, after, of course, after the movie was released, 
and you see still images of it um, in TV and, and newspaper and Time magazine, it was like, wow, that's what that thing was? That was crazy. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing well, the, like it The before. creature itself, you know, the design, of course, belonging to Giger, um, from what I understand, they went through quite a few tests before they were able to find somebody to fit or not necessarily fit in the costume, but project or wear the costume appropriately. And I didn't know this and this, I heard this anecdotally, so I don't even know if that's a word. Number one. Oh, it is. It is. uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if this is true, but I'd heard that they actually had brought in Peter Mayhew to try the costume and, and it didn't work obviously. Um, so and then, of course, I, from what I understand, it was by chance in a pub, that's right, or a, a bar or something like that. They found a, a gentleman, um, Bolahi Bodeo. He's a dancer. He was a dancer. Yeah. Uh huh. And then he, he has a very striking uh, frame, I would say, and I I think that it's just providence that they were bumping into this guy and and found him and were able to resize the suit to fit his proportions because that is, it makes something tremendous. Mm-hmm. And he was, I think. And, and, yeah. And he was, um, had very, very long arms, very long arms. And that, that's part of it, of course. Uh, yeah, he was, it was, it was crazy. Uh, gangly, I believe is the term you would use. <laughs> right. Of course, in, in looking at this now, I can't imagine that Doug Jones would have escaped without playing the creature at some point. If this were remade, mm-hmm. or if it were made today, I think, or if Doug Jones would have been a little older, I could see that as something that he would have been specifically sought out for. Um, but uh, but as far as Alien is concerned, I'm very glad that it worked out the way uh, it did. Absolutely. I think when you have movies like Alien that are so significant and made... A tremendous impact the way that alien has it it seems almost like it's a culmination of not only the hard work and the talent of the filmmakers and the crew involved but a, almost a series of coincidences and happy accidents that develops it into something outstanding mm-hmm. i mean i could be wrong maybe i'm romanticizing no, that, it a little bit that's generally what happens um jaws wasn't as successful would not have been as successful f- were it not for the fact they couldn't get that shark to work. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot there. And I know that we have talked about, speaking of Jaws, I'd still like to do that episode with you in the future. Oh, yeah. Um, especially as summer approaches. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, this, you know, the film moves very, very fast after all of this happens. And it seems like the crew is picked off very quickly. And I, when I watched this, with my wife uh, just the other week, I was surprised by how fast everything occurred given how slowly the film built up. Mm-hmm. But it's not that fast. It, it, again, it's in story. So you, 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 you had the introduction before they go on the planet. They're on the planet, facehugger. Um, and then people start getting killed off. And then Ripley going to the shuttle. So the the last bit, you, you've got 20 minutes where it's just Ripley and Jonesy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of time um, in a, in Maybe a movie. Maybe it just seemed to go quickly. I don't, yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. I guess it was the, the rate at which 
people were killed. Yeah. I think is what <laughs> I mean to say that that happened quickly. Yeah, it it, it and, did. Yep, it did. Uh, as it, and that is its own own part. But in the, if you divide the movie into quarters, the third quarter, the third act is everybody getting knocked off. And, and, and in that, uh, of course, we found out that Ash is um, a replicant or a, a robot. Right. A synth- Which is still shocking. A synthetic person. Or artificial, artificial person, person. Is, the, yeah. is the term bishop. That's right, bishop. I, <laughs> I prefer the term artificial person. Bishop. I, yeah, I like bishop. There's, there's a lot of uh, um, discussion about Lambert basically being a woman whining and I, I, mm-hmm. I know there's some a lot of pushback about that and it is unfortunate but in Aliens of course it was a guy who who is playing the right. role of just whining about the whole thing so so what do you think that that was purposeful on the part of Cameron to to kind of counterbalance that uh, possibly I, just I, I, I think way? it was is more so you only, the only female in the in the ensemble in Aliens was Sigourney Weaver and and she was a badass, and so, but but I think in Alien, what is not brought up is that Lambert is very upset because she had a relationship mm-hmm. with Dallas. That's the underlying element there, and so mm-hmm. what you're you're getting is not only she's afraid, but she's very upset that she lost her lover, uh, Captain seems Captain Dallas. Yeah, and and so that's not really sussed out. And I think if you know that element. You, mm-hmm. you don't look at Lambert as a weak individual because Veronica Cartwright was uh, considered very seriously for Ripley's role. Uh, so she was a great actress um, and, and did a great, great job. All of those character actors, uh, with possible exception of Yafet Kodo, went on to really do well. Um, right. And Yafet Kodo did a great job. I, I, I don't know what, what happened to Yafet Kodo. I know he did a James Bond movie in there somewhere, but um, I thought they all did a great job. And on that point, it it, it is almost a reversal of the the hero, or excuse me, the uh, the damsel in distress mm-hmm. scenario in this film. You know, you have the guy Kane who is violated mm-hmm. and is it distressed more or less. And then you have uh, then you have Ripley, who is essentially the heroine of the film. I mean, she really she does it to it. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and at no point does she take shit from anybody. No, no. In in the cor- or over the course of the film, which I absolutely love. I mean, you mentioned her role in Aliens, the sequel to this film. Obviously, you know they kind of take that to the next level. But you know, without the power loader in this movie, she's still a uh, yeah, which is yeah. awesome. In her space skivvies, no less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Ripley Scott had mentioned uh, that he would have had them in the scene where they wake up. He would have had them nude because they would. That's just the way they would they would be, and in a similar right. way that when she was going back into the pod, she would basically have very little on. That's the intent, but that's not how so, it was viewed. Uh, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. But it, but it um, was intended so, for her to be viewed as vulnerable. That was, 
Right. The, the, the and that's, intent. you know, and for me personally, that's what I got out yeah. of that whole yeah. scene because I was like, you know, you have those dreams where you're, I mean, I'm sure everybody has them. It's like a, a cultural meme at this point. You have that dream where you're naked <laughs> mm-hmm. and you have to go to school or you're at work or whatever. Now, I mean, I, that is absolutely the way that I viewed that because even if you're wearing jeans, it's still something mm-hmm. keeping you separated from this aberration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> So I definitely get that. And every time I watched it, I think of how I would feel in that scenario. So, I mean, visually, it's I, to me, the message was received. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I got. Out of it. But I'm sure that there are plenty of people that don't feel that way. And, you know, that's fine because art is subjective, yada, yada, yada. You know, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, at, at this point, it, it all seems to happen. Um, quickly as I had, had mentioned before uh, as far as the elimination of the creature it's pretty much just blown the hell out of the airlock um, <laughs> the way the way that was shot though I, I, I thought was probably the more the most interesting thing about it um, as far as the perspective mm-hmm. is concerned yep and, and and one thing I, I, I want to bring up and is and to lead into that that ending is that really Scott has spoken a lot about um, as a director, you've got to do what you feel the movie needs. And sometimes you're going to get no, and sometimes you're just going to keep going. And so the scene where uh, Brett is, is killed with the chains and the, the water, he was asked Mm -hmm. why, because it is just that's what I want, and that's what they had. And mm-hmm. then when Ripley is in the pod and she's singing, "You're my lucky star," the producers were really concerned because it took a lot of money to get clearance to do that. Uh, so, really, Scott was very intent on how that movie should look, and I think he succeeded. Obviously, it's a classic and it holds up very well, except for maybe. The, the the puppet of the of the the little creature but it does hold up very well in watching again this is 40 years later and it's very exciting to watch sure. and then you mentioned the last scene do you know how they filmed the the so you've got the alien out he's he's trying to get back into the ship and mm-hmm. and she hits the engines do you know how that was done no, uh, water, just a ring of water with arcs lighting the water. And Scott, ah, is... and, and they said, what's that? And he goes, plasma engines. He just made it up. Plasma engines. <laughs> Don't, Don't ask. ask. <laughs> just plasma engines. That's what it is. Sure. And then that's it's just water being shot down, lit by arcs from above. Boom. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got plasma engines. That's fantastic. Yeah, and, and it's just incredible. So, and that, I think, again, speaks to some of the, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us who are a little bit more involved with film and appreciate film um, on a deeper level than maybe just sitting down to watch it, you know, you, you don't really get how much goes into to bringing these things to life. It's so much more than just, you know, um, sitting behind the camera and, you know, seeing like there, there it gets a bit technical, mm-hmm. as uh, Christian Bale might say. And and in the case of directors like Spielberg or Scott or uh, 
um, Lucas during the the making and development of Star Wars, you know, a lot of that stuff is is innovation, and you're making it up on the spot. And you know, speaking of these guys in particular, their effects that are didn't exist prior. I, absolutely, they yeah. So that you know, there's a lot to be said for that, um, and 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 that's all very very fascinating and, and very fun to learn and, about. And, and practical um, effects are great and you see oh, you yeah. see more directors nowadays going to practical effects now some things obviously they want to they can't accomplish other than cgi but abrams has yeah. been really good about bringing as much practical effects back into his movie making as he as is reasonable to get mm-hmm. that feel yeah i can definitely appreciate that mm-hmm. Now, I do. There's one thing that I want to mention, and one thing I want to talk about just because I love it so much. Um, and then we'll wrap this up. I want to talk about uh, Jerry Goldsmith and the score of Alien mm-hmm. and, and how it contributes to the film. Oh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, the cues are, are really, really good. I've listened to a little bit of that uh, again. Uh, this week it, it's I, I love music movie music and it, it is great to get a, a feel for the movie through the music and, and i think mm-hmm. you really do that he built built tension very very well uh it was it was really really nice really good i don't think it would have been the movie that it is without jerry goldsmith's score not not really i i think as you said uh, going into a movie there's so much that it has to work it all has to work in concert for it to be this classic movie and and uh, again we always talk about jaws but but jaws that score those notes um mm-hmm. it's very uh, star wars etc but you know it's it's the atmosphere mm-hmm that he created an alien. And I think that's, yeah. that's really the only way to put it. It, it create, especially when they touch down on the planet, mm-hmm. it's, it's that atmosphere that the score created. It is, it, it gets inside you. It's haunting. Uh, and I think it's capable of, of conveying, um, the mounting terror that is necessary in that slow pace of the film. And then it also kind of conveys a lingering sense of dread. It's very dark, but at the same time, very beautiful and I don't think it, I just don't think it would be the film that it is. And, and it, and it lends itself through the movie to what you had described previously as the vastness of what they're undergoing and then uh, their helplessness uh, uh, of what mm-hmm. they're going through. And then the, the sense of triumph at the end when Ripley gets rid of the alien, the buildup in the, in the pod and that whole sequence. So Absolutely. A fantastic film. Um, the sequel, obviously not done by Scott, mm-hmm. uh, but James Cameron, who is a genius in his own way. Um, but but that's just a shoot 'em up action film. movie. It, it is. Just a it is. And it, and it, <laughs> it's very clear that that's what blow it is. things up, um, man. Just the only reason I mentioned that is because well, I'll go ahead and put Alien Three in there also. What I was going to say was that Alien is an amazing film. It is a beautiful piece of cinema that exists almost in its own place 
in time and space as far as my relationship to it and my opinion of it. And I was going to say, as far as the franchise is concerned, I thought that Aliens was a pretty damn good Oh, movie. yeah, it was great. Um, yeah. And Alien 3, I know people tend to be a little divided on that, and that could be the subject of a podcast itself. But I enjoyed Alien 3. I like David Fincher. I'm a huge David Fincher fan. Um, you know, so that was very enjoyable to me. But post-Alien 3, not so much. You didn't like and, Prometheus? Uh, I, you know, I want to give Prometheus another chance, um, and I want to allow myself to see some of the scenes that were removed from Prometheus, because I've been told that if you watch the film with those scenes reinserted, that pretty much everything that you were left wondering about and mm-hmm. felt was a hole, um, that it actually is a hole, and those scenes fill it in, and the film makes a lot more sense. Did, did you see um, when you watch it? Did that you way. see Covenant? Because I have not seen Covenant. Yeah, I did, and unfortunately, it was more of the same to me. I, I just, I was so excited to get back into it, and I was so excited that Prometheus was getting a sequel. Um, I just, I didn't care for mm. it, and and I, it hurts me to say that because I know or at least I'm aware of the time and the effort that's put into creating mm-hmm. something like that. And it's, it was just very disappointing to watch and have to admit that I didn't care for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm doing everyone that was involved with that film a disservice by saying that I didn't care for it, but I, I didn't, I, which is always a shame. I think you should watch it, certainly. Yeah, I might. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I didn't know it was directed by Ridley Scott, so I um, that's how much I was out of that yeah. So. yeah that that's definitely a selling point yeah, yeah. or at least it was to me you know his his return to that world and i really appreciate um and i really appreciate that mm-hmm. you know so i'm i feel like i owe it to everyone involved i definitely owe it to ridley scott to go back and maybe watch those now mm-hmm. um and see if if my attitude and opinion has changed believe it or not i'm a lot more forgiving of films <laughs> now uh, which is, sounds like such an arrogant thing to say considering i have no skill or background in filmmaking um but you know someone's got to watch yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'll be glad to do that and then provide my totally unsolicited opinion yeah. to you um but you know um i enjoy them alien though is is golden and will always be golden absolutely it's it's a perfect it's a perfect movie yeah. um i would give it a 10 out of 10 mm-hmm. all day mm-hmm. yeah it's great it's a, it's a great movie to, well, to have the opportunity. It's great to have the opportunity to rewatch it. It was it was really good. Yeah. Really good. It was very random for me too. I I know I mentioned before perhaps and probably should have mentioned at the beginning of the conversation how it came about. Um, I just you know, I was sitting around and it occurred to me that this was the fortieth anniversary of Alien, even though it's basically been all over, you know, social media and the web and and I had gone to bed one evening. My wife and I had gone to bed and um you know, we uh, we just couldn't sleep. It was one of those weird scenarios where you're both just tossing and turning mm-hmm. and you get up and you're like, can you sleep? Nope. And you just get up. It was maybe midnight or one o'clock in the morning or something like that. And uh, we, I, she's like, you know, I, I want Taco Bell. I don't know why. I just want it. And I was like, well, they're open. <laughs> so, you know, I drove to Taco Bell and I was like, you know what? We should watch Alien. And it just, you know, it all happened like that there wasn't really any thinking about it it was just like hey let's watch alien and i was like hey you know who else likes alien dad likes alien Uh let's Mm -hmm. do an alien episode so we watched it it was great uh of course 
it's always followed by a, a you know the indigestion that you know <laughs> is coming if you've eaten Taco Bell, but you do it anyway for some stupid reason. So at that point, I was definitely sort of uh, empathizing and sympathizing mm. with Kane <laughs> simultaneously there. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really glad that it worked out the way that it did, and I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk about oh, it yeah. again. Absolutely. Was there anything you'd like to say about the film? No. Um, in summary? No, or? you were kind enough to let me interrupt you on occasion. So, uh, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure that we're going to do this again. Mm-hmm. I don't know what time and place or what the subject of it will be. Um, but uh, definitely have you back on and and we'll do this again for sure i always enjoy i I love to talk about jaws um standing out in the rain waiting uh, to go in to see it after being minutes being like missing going in Uh, i was at the door and had to wait two hours to go oh wow in the rain well let's 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 save that let's save that we'll Uh we'll talk about it i think it would still be great to do a jaws episode sure um but yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Again, thank you so much, Dad, for taking oh, time sure. out of your Sunday yeah, to, you to do this. Always yeah, a pleasure. always a pleasure, son. You bet. All right, Dad. Well, until next time. Yep. All righty then. That is another episode in the bag. Thanks again so much for listening. And big thank you to my dad, Steve Marcotte, for joining me again. That was a really fun conversation to have. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to go back and watch Alien after not having watched it for so long. So that was a lot of fun. Also, I want to call attention to the Alien short films on IGN. They have partnered with independent film directors and Fox to produce these roughly 10 to 12 minute long short segments that explore different facets of the alien universe and the creature and human experience with the xenomorph and they're very cool they're very lovely i appreciate them and i'm very glad that i had the opportunity to watch those i had a lot of fun with them I think they had been releasing a new one every Friday this month. And I think there may be one more yet before they're done. In fact, they they may actually already be done. I'm not sure. But check those out. They are very, very cool. Anyway, that is our show, as they say. Once more, I've been your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte. And thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant Podcast. Until next time, y'all.